Hello everyone, welcome again, once again, to the Cave to the Cross Apologetics. I'm Patrick. And I'm Tony, and today we're going to be talking about the introduction to Jason Lyle's relatively new book, Keeping Faith in an Age of Reason. Yeah, uh, we've uh, no stranger to Jason Lyle. Uh, he's pretty uh, well known in the apologetics community. Um, he's a Christian uh, astrophysicist, so he's written a lot and done a lot of uh, uh, different projects uh, concerning uh, starlight travel and, and um, uh, different types of creationists, young earth creationists. I uh, used to work for uh, Ken Ham and the Creation Museum, helped set that up. Uh, he's got his own uh, thing now, which is the Bible Science Institute, and he's written just a bunch of books, uh, Taking Back Astronomy, Stargazer's Guide to Night Sky, and Ultimate Proof for Creation, Discerning Truth, and Understanding Genesis. Yeah, so this is a, a kind of a, um, a a neat book for us because our uh, group are, are getting together and discussing various issues and books and apologetics and that sort of thing. started with Jason Lyle several years ago when he wrote The Ultimate Proof for Creationism, and we want to take a look at that, and that's how our, our getting together got started. So this one is kind of a... A revisiting for us of Jason Lyle, maybe a trip down memory lane or something yeah, like it's that. It's his fault. Yeah, <laughs> that we yeah that we began to get together. So we want to look at his the introduction to this book, and he kind of lays out where he wants to go here in this particular book. Mm -hmm. uh, so the contents are just the the introduction, and then he's got different kind of subcategories where he's collectivized uh, different similar content. So uh, supposed contradictions with uh, numbers, places, genealogies, uh, timing of events, uh, when one thing happened, did it cause another thing, uh, details, uh, whether something happened or whether something didn't happen. Uh, so that's kind of how he lays out the book. Yeah. <clears throat> so, and what the, the major uh, emphasis, I guess, or thrust of the book would be Issues with regard to or claims of contradictions in the Bible, right? So that's what he's trying to get at. He wants to uh, examine various contradictions that are found in the Bible. Yeah, or things that people claim are contradictions that might not actually be contradictions. Um, even if they were wrong, they're not always contradictions. Yeah. So, yeah, so, you know, uh, so it's interesting here. He says that he wants to... Um, he wants to demonstrate the veracity of the scriptures, notice, by addressing every alleged Bible contradiction. And, ever. Or, yeah, ever. Yeah. Or that he's seen. Yeah. Uh, and, and especially the most the ones that are used most often in, in, on the Internet. So yeah. he's, gonna, he's, he's going straight for the net deal. Here. Yeah. Well, I mean, the Internet is really the best place for the top minds to, to that, interact obviously, with. Obviously, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's, that's where all the scholars hang out. Three things he wants to accomplish. He thinks that examining these various contradictions do three things for us. It helps us to understand the biblical text better. It increases our confidence in scripture. And it demonstrates, he's going to say, that the Bible's critics' uh, choice to reject scripture is not a rational one, but he's going to try to show that it is an emotional one driven by the critics' He says, hatred of God. Yeah, uh, and so I think we've been studying Romans 1 for pretty much five years now, and we've, <laughs> I think we've kind of settled a little bit on it. But uh, 
I wanted to read uh, his his uh, his uh, citation of Romans 1, 18 through 25 here. So it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and things that have been made. So they are without excuse. They are without apology. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immoral gods for images resembling mortal man and birds, animals, and creeping things. Uh, therefore, God gave them up to the lusts of their heart, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. And so uh, we've we've interacted with this text before, uh, especially for kind of the evidentialists uh, that, that have um, kind of pointed to this passage as well, saying, you know, you look out at creation and you see uh, the stars, the, the moon, uh, just creation in general, and you see how uh, minute of detail uh, that uh, it all works together. It all seems to have uh, a purpose or, or it's too intricate. And so we can perceive it and see God's glory, God's creation. It, there must be a creator there, the, uh, the teleological uh, yeah. argumentation. Yeah. Uh, but presuppositionalists, on the other hand, uh, kind of follow the tradition of John Calvin, who has this understanding of a, a divine sense, a sensus divinitas is what Calvin calls it, where you, you, don't, you don't even have to look at something by the very act of you living uh, and interacting and seeing and, and just going about your daily life. Anything that you come across is, is proof of God's existence. You don't have to go out and suddenly realize, wow, there are a lot of stars. Mm -hmm. Someone made that. Mm -hmm. you, you already know it kind of going, mm -hmm. going into the world mm -hmm. so that everyone is without excuse. So that uh, um, we, we, don't, we don't get our faith through that kind of perception. Uh, some evidentialists would probably disagree with that. But, um, but we're at least condemned for our knowledge, but we're suppressing it until uh, we hear God's word. We're uh, saved by him and then come to faith. Right. So the truth of God's existence is known to everyone in their, we might say, heart of hearts. But uh, people who claim that God does not exist, uh, the scripture here says they are suppressing the truth. And so they're holding down the truth to keep, uh, keep from having to acknowledge God's existence. So I think that's the point he's making with regard to uh, Romans 1, 18 through 25. Mm -hmm. All right, well, the next thing he wants to do then, so first of all, he, he wants to look at these various uh, uh, alleged contradictions so that we can, you know, it will help us understand the Bible and increase our confidence and, and that sort of thing. But also, first he wants to define his terms. And so he talks about what is a contradiction. All right, so uh, two statements, he says, are said to be contradictory when one asserts what the other denies. Correct. So saying the ball is red and the ball is not red, those are two contradictory statements. Right. In other words, yeah. So one one is suggesting that 
the ball is like this, you know, in this sense at this time. The other is saying that it isn't. And so he makes the point that we have to um, um, put the qualifiers of time and linguistic sense mm -hmm. in it, right? So we would say we could formalize a contradiction as saying something like this. A and not A uh, can't be true at the same time and in the same sense or in the same relationship, right? So A and not A cannot both be true. Right. right. Until evolution takes over, changes the world so that contradictory <laughs> statements can occur and we all implode. That's right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So any truth claim uh, that that uh, is a contradiction, we would say, has to be wrong. It's false. It goes beyond the bounds of what truth, uh, what constrains truth. Contradictions uh, violate that, right? And again, he wants to qualify in the same time, uh, at the same time, rather, and at the same relationship, mm -hmm. or at the same sense. Right? Yeah. Yeah, you could you could have a, a red car and then you could go and paint it and it's a black car and you can make those two statements by saying, hey, I, I have a red car. An hour later, you can say you have a black car. You're not contradicting it because in, within that hour, you had a painting. Yeah, good. And in terms of the same sense, uh, you could say, you know, um, my my car is not damaged and my car is damaged, <laughs> yeah. right? It's damaged on this side, but it's not damaged on that That's side. That's how it became black. Yeah. Because it, it was damaged. <laughs> so, you know, my car is damaged and not damaged, but it's in different sense. So a contradiction has to be at the same time with regard to the same time and in relationship uh, and, and in the same sense. So he wants us to be clear with regard to what a contradiction is. Uh, and he believes that most of the things that uh, that uh, folks are claiming to be contradictions in the scriptures are not contradictions. That's what he wants to try to show in this particular book. Right? Yeah. He makes uh, the distinction between um, uh, a contradiction versus some statements that are compatible and some statements that are contrary to one another, right? So statements can be uh, compatible with one another, he says. For instance, we can say that the car is fast and the car is red. Mm -hmm. But we haven't contradicted. Yeah. What, you know, the car well, is either car fast is either, or red. Yeah. It, it can't be both. Those are mutually well, yeah. exclusive yeah. things. Yeah. Of course it can be both, right? right? So those are compatible statements. And, you know, just you know, the car can be both fast and red, mm -hmm. right? And then contrary is uh, when two statements... Um, cannot both be true at the same time, right? That's what, what he's getting at there. And so statements are contrary to each other with, with regard to, uh, but they're not necessarily um, contradictory, right? It could still be false. The, uh, the example he gives is the traffic light is red and then the traffic light is green. So it's not a, it doesn't follow that the traffic light is red and the traffic light is not red. There's, there's that would a, be the contradiction. That would be the contradiction. Right. Here, uh, it's it's a different uh, truth claim that's coming out that uh, would make it contrary. Yeah. So so the idea of contrary is um, what if the what if the light is yellow, and if we say that the light is red and the, or the and the light is green, right? Those are uh, they're both wrong, mm -hmm. right? Because it's yellow, right? So a traffic. So so we didn't necessarily make a contradiction. We said a contrary statement. 
All right, and so uh, so those are some of the definitions that he wants us to be clear on, especially with regard to what a contradiction is. Um, then the last thing that he does in this introductory chapter is uh, list what he calls common fallacies, mm -hmm. right? And of course, a fallacy is just bad reasoning, right? Right. Yeah. Um... William and Craig, uh, we always say, uh, we might not always agree with him, but man, he can point out fallacies like no other. <laughs> Even in debates, he'll rattle it off to a point where uh, he, he kind of uh, hyperventilates the, the other side. <laughs> oh, you're just, you're just philosophizing me out of this argument. Well, you know, we're just asking you to say that words have meaning. So, yeah, really. Yeah. So fallacy is a mistake in reasoning, and fallacies usually... Uh, are called fallacies because the mistake is common, common enough to get a name. And so there are, you know, a bunch of fallacies, oh, many and many lot, and yeah. many fallacies, and they're just mistakes in reasoning that somebody has attached a name mm -hmm. to and said that that's a fallacy. I so wonder we, if there's a fallacy for using false fallacies, because <laughs> I've had people say, oh, you, you know, you're attacking the messenger there, or, you know, you're, you, uh, uh, well, it if it's not, we can call that yeah. you, the, the uh, false fallacy yeah. fallacy. Yeah, there right? you go. Yeah, there you go. Those All are right. the argumentations that I tend to have now is, <laughs> is people who want to sound smart and say that it's a fallacy when it's not a fallacy. Yeah. It's like, oh, th th this person works for this company, so uh, th uh, their, their um, opinion is skewed. Well, then everyone's opinion is skewed because they work in that field. I mean, yeah. you're appealing yeah. to, to, uh, to authority. You're not appealing to authority. You're appealing to someone who ha might have more knowledge in that. Way. Yeah, or that could be the genetic fallacy where you're saying it's the source that determines the truth and not the, the actual claim or the argument, right? And so, yeah. So the fallacy, the false fallacy fallacy. That's a good one. That's we'll, how I'll get in the history we'll, books. Yeah, we'll, we'll write that one down yeah. and put it There's put my it million dollar list. idea. <laughs> All right, so um, so he starts off with the argument from silence. He says this is the mistaken assumption that if something is not mentioned, then it didn't happen, right? Yeah, so uh, we, we, we kind of get this from if I were writing this, then I would have said this. Well, but you didn't write it, or this is someone writing from a, a, a more Eastern perspective, so they're not going to care about... Uh, series of events like we see that in Matthew a lot is he tends to have um, uh, more of a, a, a Jewish writing sense of here's the important thing then the secondary thing and the third thing but they didn't happen in that order right. Um, right. so obviously I, I'm, I'm gonna write it from a Western perspective so I care about a B and C or I care about one two and three Matthew cares about a B and C right. so just because Matthew doesn't say it but I want him to say it doesn't mean that it didn't happen. Right, right. So, for instance, in the illustration he uses, and, and so hang on here, right, because this is pretty. Yeah. <laughs> John the Baptist, he says, um, the Bible never states anywhere that John the Baptist ever had to use the restroom. Yeah, now for, for our Muslim folks, that, that this is very important. So, you know, uh, when, when uh, the Bible talks about Jesus eating food, then, then bad things happen. So... Uh, obviously, Jesus can be God because of this. So they would argue from, from silence here. Right, yeah. So clearly, you know, just because the Bible never mentions that doesn't mean that it mm -hmm. didn't happen. And that's yeah. an argument from silence, right? It's well, not a contradiction to say that, hey, they never, they omitted this. Yeah. Well, that's not a contradiction. Well, and, and just how the Bible is, is <clears throat> written. We, we, we talk about the transmission of, of the Gospels and, and, and Scripture is that it's not 
that they fell into a trance and they're writing from a single perspective of being driven by the Holy Spirit where their eyes gloss over and they're, you know, writing prophecy that we see in thousands of bad B movies. But the Holy Spirit comes alongside, uses, you know, his his breath to move them and uh, they write in their their time, their place, their fashion, uh, in different categories. Um, but it's not a, a dictation by the Holy Spirit. He's using people to um, to to write Scripture in in a way that it uh, uh, kind of appeals to uh, uh, different people or uh, different categories of people. And so um, it's I, I think tr transmission here, especially when you have out uh, unbelievers talking about it, uh, it's important to understand to have kind of a biblical sense of. The transmission of, of scripture mm, yeah good yeah and so um so the first one here arguing from silence and of course we get this you know john said this matthew never mentioned it oh we got a contradiction yeah, that's always well, a big one. no no it's an argument from silence just because matthew didn't mention it doesn't mean it didn't happen and just because john you know because john mentioned it that sort of thing we don't have a contradiction all right the next one here is um he calls the subset fallacies and he says that this is the era of claiming that A and B are con uh, contradictory when in fact A is a subset of B or B is a subset of A, mm -hmm. right? So I have at least uh, five, I have ten fingers. Well, it also means I have five fingers, right? And so if you just mentioned, well, Tony has, he, he, you know, he uses five fingers. And somebody would say, oh, you, you just committed a fallacy wrong. because, yeah, he's, he's got 10 of them. Yeah, right. But we're only using five of them at this time. Yeah, <laughs> right. So, yeah, so the subset fallacy, he says, is actually one type of argument from silence, right? Because you didn't mention my other hand because I only used uh, the, hand, the, the, the hand here, one hand, mm -hmm. right? And so, uh, so, so, for instance, and his illustration is if Jesus healed... If one author says Jesus healed a demon-possessed uh, man, and another author is, is talking about that same instance, and it says Jesus healed two demon-possessed uh, men, then clearly uh, he healed at least one, mm -hmm. right? And so if the author wants to focus on that, then that's what that author is focusing in on, but that doesn't mean that that's a contradiction. Yeah, right? and, and we also talk about kind of time preference here is sometimes someone will say uh, like a number and they'll be talking about a specific time frame but then another author will mention a larger time frame so it says oh you know this says 270 but it really uh, says 420 in, in, in this one so which one is it well it's both here's the first set here's the total or the second set uh, depending on on your time frame yeah all right, uh, the bifurcation fallacy is, is, is basically what's commonly called a false dilemma. Yeah. Right? So anytime that you're given two options and there, and there may be a third option and you're only given two, then that's a false dilemma. Right? Either A or B is the case, so which is it? Yeah, you're right? playing would you rather. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, it could be neither. Yeah. Right? Or it could play. be C. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so he, so this is another fallacy. He calls the bifurcation fallacy or a false dilemma. Right? Either person is justified by faith or by works. Well, which is it? Yeah. Well, how come it couldn't be both? Right? They're justified by faith, 
before God, and this is an illustration that he uses, mm -hmm. and they're justified by works before men. Yeah, James 2 talks about yeah. that. Yeah, so that's really no fallacy. Mm -hmm. right? yeah. it's using the word in different senses. Or, or, or the argument for where does goodness come from? Uh, it's, it's, you know, God plucks goodness uh, just randomly from, from the stars or wherever he gets it and just says, murder is wrong, rape is wrong, because this is where I appeal to. Or uh, um, th there's there's uh, just an arbitrariness. Well, uh, I want murder to be wrong, uh, but um, sacrificing animals is is okay because I just happen. It's it's a Tuesday for me. I'm God. It's Tuesday, and and so I'm okay with with slaughtering animals. Or does goodness originate in God, and out of His character, He proclaims what is good. So if if God is love, if He's uh, a bringer of life, then Murder is wrong because God uh, cherishes life and gives it. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. Out of his so, so this is kind of the euphoro dilemma here. Right? I'm glad where, you said it because yeah. I was struggling that one. <laughs> where God is. So the idea here is: Does goodness, you know, or moral goodness, that kind of stuff, come as a result of God's commands? That's called the divine command theory. Mm -hmm. Whatever God says, that's what good is. Or right. So now we're given two options. The second option, or is goodness somehow prior or greater than God, and God has to appeal to something greater than himself, just like, for instance, we might say that goodness we would appeal to in order to determine what goodness is. So if we say, you know, God has to appeal to something greater than, than himself in order to determine what goodness is, that kind of diminishes God. He's not all-powerful, omnipotent. It's not the, you know, it's not the scripture what calls God. He is the ultimate, right, an infinite God. So we don't want God appealing to something else to determine what's good. But on the other hand, I, I don't think we want, uh, as you mentioned, you know, God, whatever God says is good, because that would seem to imply that God could arbitrarily say anything, right? Um, you know, and, and, and uh, it would have to be good just by virtue of him making the command. Yeah, God, God could also change in, in that scenario too, uh, of which we do see uh, the possibility of like Allah changing. Uh, he's He's so powerful that he's even above his own commands. So uh, for him, he can change. Yeah. Uh, but our God cannot change. So right. so 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 we second. solved the dilemma. We we uh, split the horn of dilemma by saying. It's neither that God arbitrarily would say anything and call that either good or bad, because good or bad isn't based on whatever God says necessarily, nor is it that God has to appeal to something greater than himself and call that. But, and here's how we split the, um, the dilemma here, right? The split the horns of the dilemma. We say that the, it's the nature and character of God that makes something good. And so if God gives a command, it's not just based on his will and it's arbitrary, but it comes out of his nature and his character. Good is who he is, mm -hmm. right? And so he doesn't have to appeal to anything over and beyond himself, nor is it just arbitrarily saying anything is good. Good is who he is, and so his commands are good because that's who God is, right? That's how we help answer to like the problem of evil. It's always, you know, either God is weak and can't do it, or he doesn't want to do it, so he's evil, so... You know, or or maybe there's a third option, like out of evil he produces goodness, and so there are there's a reason for evil. Yeah, yeah. 
Good. So that's the uh, what he calls the bifurcation fallacy or the false dilemma. Sometimes if you're only given two options, there's a third one, or it might be neither, right? Or it might be both sometimes, right? So that's, that's the false dilemma. The next one is um, equivocation. And so this one has to do with shifting the meaning of words within an argument. So in one part of the argument, uh, a premise, let's say, in the argument. So an argument is made up of uh, statements that we call propositions, right? Propositions are statements that are either true or false. So, you know, all arguments are made up of statements, and but statements have um, you know, different functions. So, for instance, if I say, you know, what time is it, that's not a proposition because it's not a statement that's either true or false. If I say, stand up, that's not a proposition because it's not a statement that's either true or false. Mm -hmm. If I say, the door is open, well, that's a proposition because it's a statement that's either true or false. We say it has truth value. And it may be true and it may be false, but that's so... So, so arguments are made up of proposition statements that have truth value that are either true or false, and we say that uh, the pro the the statements that uh, are um, so one the main claim is called the, the conclusion, and the statements that support the conclusion that give reasons to believe that that's true are called premises. Mm -hmm. So an argument has premises and a conclusion. And so the equivocation fallacy then, and this is where I was going with this, okay, I hope I didn't, you know, I almost lost myself. Well, good. <laughs> Circle around. Today. Yeah. The equivocation fallacy then is when we, for instance, take a word that we're using in the premise, the reasons that are being, uh, the, the propositions that are given as reasons, and, and, and use it in one definition, uh, you know, one meaning, and then in the conclusion for instance, we use the same word with a different meaning. Mm -hmm. And so now we say we have equivocated on that particular word. We use the word, uh, we shift the meaning in the argument. Right? It meant this in the premises, and when we're using the premises, and now in the conclusion, hey, you, it means something else. Yeah. And that's not a good way to argue. Trying to it's slip called, it in there to yeah. win. Yeah, yeah, so that's equivocation. <clears throat> and so he wants to point that out for us. Um, with regard to uh, one of these fallacies that uh, we need to be aware of. Okay, so uh, where are we here? We have semantic range fallacy. Yeah, it uh, chooses a definition that suits uh, your preconceived definition uh, or interpretation. <clears throat> um, so it, it, rather than allowing the context to to constrain the meaning, uh, you just make up. Kind of whatever you want, so it's 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 a little bit uh, a little bit like uh, equivocation, except you're more I think deliberate in in um, in getting trying to get your point through uh, collusion. Right. So all the words have these various meanings. I'm going to choose the one that I want it to have. Yeah. And then if the argument or the claim doesn't make sense, I say, see, look, that's a bad claim or it's a contradictory claim. No, it's not. You chose the meaning that you wanted and attributed that to the claim, and that's not what the claim is all about. It's almost like, um, you know, the straw man fallacy, mm -hmm. right, where you build a straw man from a person's argument. You criticize your strong man and then say, look, this is their argument, and, and, and it's wrong. Well, no, that's your straw man argument that you created, and it's not their argument. Yeah. Right? Uh, when people talk about free will, we need to make sure that we're using the Bible's definition of what free will is because... That's only where we're going to understand where the Bible talks about free will. But if you use just a generic, 
uh, philosophical uh, definition. You're kind of talking past each other. Yeah, good, good. Well, this is some pretty good stuff. How about uh, we uh, pick this up next time and, and finish out this introduction and look at his uh, the rest of these uh, uh, fallacies that he's describing to us. Yeah, that sounds good. All right, great. All right. See you next time.